Torah together is, um, I mean, that's the deepest sense of community that we all seek. Uh, so my bracha to you, uh, to you all is that uh, hopefully tonight, notwithstanding that you continue to have amazing experiences together, growth experiences, and to find meaning, thank you so much, um, to find meaning, and, um, and, uh, and I give you a bracha that, uh, that, that you continue to, to find whatever you're looking for, and that you do it together, and that you support each other in that, uh, in that journey, and that it uh, continues to be a success, and hopefully give chizek to the rest of the people that, that, aren't, uh, that don't merit to have such a group, that don't merit to have such a, um, a, a I would say fraternity, a sorority has a different connotation, but, uh, but a sisterhood. Uh, and that's uh, and so I, I'm just uh, I'm very grateful to be able to share a few words together with you guys and uh, and I promise if if I'm speaking I'm a rabbi so like I, I if I'm talking too long cut me off and let me know rabbi it's too much um, but um, but I, let's start like this uh, the title of uh, the title of uh, my little talk tonight was supposed to be about talking about a mystery of Hanukkah uh, all the Jewish holidays really everything we do as Jews contains within it mysteries. That means that there's exoteric reasons why we do things. It's written down in the halacha, or that, uh, you know, our, our parents told us to do it or didn't tell us, and there was a teacher told us. There's one aspect of that. That's the exoteric, the exoteric, the outside reasons why we do things. And then there's the more esoteric. There are, there are reasons underneath everything that we do in Judaism. Part of my own personal journey um, it, that ended with a beard and a, a big kippah like this, and choosing to make my life about teaching Torah, which is ideally how I imagine myself in all my jobs and in the shul and in the school, um, whether it's to adults or to children, is, is the goal of teaching Torah, I think, is to reveal to people that every act that we do and every date on the calendar, uh, we call our holidays Moadim, which means a meeting. It's a meeting place for us. It's, a, it's an ability for us to go ahead and to access something that's transcendent. Uh, that's what we're all seeking. Uh, at least it's what I'm seeking. And, um, and, that, and that when you delve into sources and when you learn more about something, the more meaning that comes from it. So that's what I mean by mystery, is that is revealing that esoteric side of things adds further meaning to us. That when we go ahead and, uh, and, we, and we approach Hanukkah, which is the holiday that's, uh, that's upon us soon, it's... Uh, I already see, uh, you know, the latke recipes coming out of some uh-huh. food and wine. I don't know if anybody uh-huh. saw. Uh, in food and wine, they had, like, uh, these latkes arranged very beautifully with, like, you know, a set designer and everything. So they had latkes and shrimp. And somebody responded, <laughs> like, like, I don't think that that's a traditional Jewish... Uh, I don't know. There's many different ways to practice. But, you know, a little sour cream, a little applesauce. But it's, it's, it's coming up in earnest. And, uh, and, and, and what a... Uh, what an evening with the rain outside. I feel totally inundated and waterlogged. So I, poly- I look, I, I told my wife, I'm like, I wanted to go home and like, you know, make myself look a little bit more rabbinic. I literally just left school. So I apologize for my appearance, but um, apologize to my wife about my appearance. But, um, but, but our, my, goal, my goal in the next 20, 25 minutes or so is to hopefully reveal an aspect of Hanukkah, just one aspect of Hanukkah, that hopefully when we go, uh, whether we're, when we're lighting those candles and when we're spinning those dreidels or giving, giving kids the traditional gifts, that, that it has far more meaning than just another, another time on the calendar that comes and goes. And the idea I want to focus on is one that's very, very close to my heart. Um, my family business, just a little personal thing, my family business is chinuch. Uh, is Jewish education. It's how I, how I chose and want to live my life. And it comes from both of my, uh, both my Zaidi 
my mom's dad, Zechron Racha, and my dad's dad, Zechron Racha, were both Jewish day school educators in the first generation, before it was something that we took for granted, even, that the fact that we had an opportunity to send our kids to Jewish day schools, my Saba in Denver, and uh, my Zaidi in North Shore Hebrew Academy. And uh, it skipped a generation, both my parents ended up becoming attorneys, but, uh, <laughs> and then I went ahead and disappointed them, took the LSATs and said, actually, I'm gonna go to, to Smicha. Um, and, uh, and the word I wanna focus on tonight is this word, is chinuch. Is, uh, which has very, very close affinities with the name of the holiday itself, with Hanukkah. And, uh, and by speaking and focusing on this particular point to go in deep on it, uh, I, think that, I think that we hopefully will be able to reveal an aspect of the mystery of Hanukkah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start off by, uh, by saying that with a lot, of, uh, a lot of parents in the school and, uh, and in a lot of personal conversations with friends, uh, and I don't mean to sound too grandiose, but I see as a part of my mission uh, that, that thank God I've been afforded these opportunities to do so, is, 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 is raising up the, uh, the cover, the honor of educators. Um, and that includes myself, everybody likes to be honored. The honor of educators and, uh, and, and what it is exactly that educators do. And I think that if I were to zero in on, on what makes the art of education, chinuch, uh, into something that is uh, really transcendent is that it's about considering every possible outcome. Because when it comes to the education of a child, uh, and actually as we're gonna see at the end of this talk, hopefully really to all of us, uh, the goal is for all of us to be children in this particular aspect, is that there's so many possible outcomes and there's so much at stake when, when a soul is involved, when the soul of a child is involved, there's so much that's at stake that every particular option, I like to say, we, you have to game it out and everything needs to be considered. And, uh, and, and, and hopefully the, the example that I'm gonna give right now is illustrative of this. Um, I, I teach, um, besides being a principal, I teach eighth grade boys and girls Gemara. And, um, and, and I, wanna, I wanna talk about one particular personal example of this. So, Every time I step into the classroom, uh, prominent in my eyes, I don't know if this is a healthy thing, is my eighth grade Gemara Rebbe. I was, uh, my parents, I was, I merited to have a Jewish education, um, and my parents sent me to the Hebrew Academy of Long Beach. It was a very special thing to be in school right next to the beach. I could daydream and watch the surfers outside. And, uh, and, then, and I remember very fondly Fridays going uh, to the Hoffman Manor to go and to sing. For, uh, for the people that were in the, uh, I guess, I don't even know if we could say this, old age home. And, uh, and that was very much my youth. And, and as an adult, one of the, the real gifts of being now a colleague 25 years later or so to my teachers, am I that old? Um, I am. Uh, one of the, one of the, the gifts is, is recognizing what they did for, for me and for my friends. So, so the Rebbe that I'm gonna focus on, and, and he would be so embarrassed if I were to say this, really embarrassed, which makes it all the more better. Uh, was Rabbi Gershon Kramer. Rabbi Gershon Kramer uh, was my eighth grade Gemara Rebbe. He was, um, he is, he is a master educator. He, um, he taught, he's taught now uh, generations. Um, grandparents all the way, really? Amazing, so, so you know exactly who I'm talking about and hopefully this resonates even deeper. Rabbi Kramer, when you came into Rabbi Kramer's eighth grade class, so it, it, classroom norms, they didn't even need to be established. It was just, it was clear. You're here to learn and you're here to work hard. And even to a, a child that was sent to the principal's office constantly, like myself, that was a class that you didn't, you didn't mess with. That was a class that you, that you tried your best to go ahead and to learn that was the norm. Rabbi Kramer used to, used to go ahead and to give us, and I think about him every time, because now, now in, in essence, in a certain way, I am his colleague. I do teach eighth grade Gemara, and I think about him all the time. 
One of the things that Rabbi Kramer did, a system that he had in his class, was he would give out geschmack stickers. And geschmack is the Yiddish word for, for sweetness, for, for feeling the sweetness of Torah. And he would give out these geschmack stickers. He had a whole roll of them. And this was the token economy in that class. If you went ahead and you did something that was extraordinary, if you did something that you showed grit, uh, to, to mention Angela Duckworth, the book I'm reading. But if you showed grit, if you showed resilience, if you did something special in class, so you would merit to get one of these geschmack stickers. And you would put the geschmack stickers in the front of your Gemara, and by the end of a semester, so, or the end of the year, if you had accumulated enough of the stickers, they would name you the Geschmackatorian. <laughs> so that was, so there was valedictorian, salutatorian, Kesser, Shaintov, all things that were not accessible to me. And then there was also the Geschmackatorian, which to be honest was not accessible. Oh, my apologies. Kesser Shemtov was, uh, was what my parents, my apologies. Uh, Kesser Shemtov was the award, uh, not for academic achievement, but for personal character development mm. achievement. Uh, that was what my mom always told me. Uh, this is what we really want from you. Unfortunately, I didn't quite make it, um, but, um, but um, my apologies. But, but that was, and, and uh, valedictorian, salutatorian, we all know, right? Yes. Okay. So, so. So that was, that was a special reward, and you would go to Sabra's Pizza, and, uh, mm -hmm. and you'd be able to, to share a pizza with, your, uh, with, with, with our beloved Rebbe. Now, now I understand a little bit what was behind it. Um, I don't know if anybody here is a big college football fan, but I, I want to I illustrate kind of what, what I think Rabbi Kramer was doing. In college football, there's a very similar thing. He was very into sports. There was all these rumors that he had tried out for the Lakers, and <laughs> he would play basketball with us on Thursday nights. He was legendary. He is legendary. And, and we revered him, and we looked up to him, because in a certain way, he represented Torah, but he also represented things that we wanted to be ourselves. Um, there was even a rumor they had a motorcycle many, many years, uh, <laughs> many moons before. In college football, there's a similar kind of token economy. Uh, a player, if you, if you watch a college football game, so you notice that on the helmets, uh, so players have all kinds of stickers. I was talking to, uh, to the Sexton, to the Gabay in our, in our show, who's a huge Ohio State fan. He went there for law school. So we always talk college football. And, and players would get stickers. Now, the reason they get the stickers on their helmet is not for scoring... Uh, 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 not for scoring a touchdown, it's not for winning, it's not for going ahead and doing all the standard things that one expects of somebody in a football game or in a sporting event, but the, the stickers are given out for, for small extra things, whether it's showing a particular effort on a play, whether it's doing something unexpected, a player going above and beyond, it's those small things with which they get stickers on their helmets, and that was the same effect that was, that was in our class in order to be able to, uh, to, to, to show that, that we're in it and, and, we're, and we're trying hard and we're, and we're paying attention and we're doing our best. So that was what the Geschmack stickers were. I, I do have to say parenthetically uh, that as a teacher now, I also uh, would consider the Josh Rosenfeld in the room uh, because I was distracted, uh, very easily distracted, and I was not a great student. I think I had, I, as everybody told my parents at every single parent-teacher conference, there was a lot of potential, <laughs> but, but, I, but it was not actualized. I was interested in other things. And, uh, and, and I would watch my friends accumulate these geschmack stickers uh, for all the small good things that they did and all the, all the special moments that they had in class. And there was a kind of sense of, wow, I, uh, I'm not really up to snuff. And, and I do remember feeling acutely inadequate. Uh, in seeing that, and uh, and unfortunately, I didn't realize that it was a motivation to do better. Also, 
Flash forward to 2019, I decided that I want to introduce some sort of a token economy in my class, uh, both for the boys and for the girls, something that's, that was different because girls were not taught Gemara uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the school that I went to at the time. It's a relatively new thing, and as I tell my, my, my female students, I say that we're, we're at a very special juncture in Jewish history where Gemara is now the provenance of, of, all, of all Jewish boys and girls that, that, that come to MDS or really many other schools. What a, what a remarkable time to be alive. So I wanted to go ahead and introduce this kind of a thing into my class. Yeah. Just if anyone doesn't know, Gemara is the same as Talmud, basically. Right? Gemara is means Talmud. Talmud. Kind of. Talmud. Yeah. Stop, if I do this again, I, I'm in charge. <laughs> I, I meant it. Stop me. It's a, I, I'm learning. Uh, um, so so when I teach Talmud, I wanted to go ahead and to do the same thing in my class. And, and I was on Etsy. I couldn't find uh, geschmack stickers. <laughs> I was on Etsy looking for one of these companies that can make me something similar. And I was getting ready to put geschmack on these stickers and to deploy it in my classroom. Sounds like a great idea, right? And then I stopped. And as I was about to go ahead and push, you know, order, um, I stopped and I said, hold on one second. Hold on one second. In my school, in our school, so we have about, in, in these particular grades, half the population are Jews of the Levant, uh, Sephardic Jews that come from, uh, from areas around the Mediterranean. And, uh, and also, uh, and, and the initial thought that came into my head, I said, well, Gishmak is a particularly, it's a Yiddish term, and it's something that may have resonated with myself and my friends who all had Yiddish-speaking grandparents, uh, many of them Holocaust survivors, and was part of the language that we had even as modern Orthodox Jews, and was something very familiar. But that might not necessarily be something that resonates with my students coming from Sephardic homes, from homes where Yiddish was not the language uh, that Jews really spoke Arabic. And, and, and then I stopped and I said to myself, well, one second, what word would I use now instead for these stickers? And I started, I wrote down a list. I wrote down a list of different words that would have the same ring, the same kind of, the same kind of oomph that Geschmack would have. And I was drawing blanks. I didn't know exactly what I would put on the stickers. I was ready to scrap the whole project. And then I was falling asleep, and it takes me forever to fall asleep these days. And the word that came to my mind was a modern Hebrew word. The modern Hebrew word was hafla, hey, pei, lamed, aleph, which means wondrous. Now, hafla, that word, that resonates with everybody. It's modern Hebrew, so it's accessible and applicable to Jews of all backgrounds. And it's, um, and, and it's a word that conveys the same sort of oomph. It's a single word that carries with it that sense. And it's also one that has uh, Talmudic references as well. It's used in modern uh, yeshivot, uh, which are schools for the study of Talmud. And, and, and I said, I settled on that and I, and I pressed order. For me, afterwards, I, I gave myself a little pat on the back. I said, wow, I just did something for chinuch. Right? I did something for Jewish education because I considered the options. I considered how what I was doing was going to resonate with my students. I don't always succeed in doing this, but it comes up all the time. When you go ahead and you speak to a child that's struggling in a particular class, so before the conversation, so you have to go ahead and consider every possible outcome, every possible thing. And when educators are at their best, and they do this often, my colleagues do this all the time, when, they, when you do this well, a child is served best, their chinuch, their education advances. Now you might be asking yourself, okay Rabbi, what does this have to do with Hanukkah? Right? What could this possibly have to do with Hanukkah? Now I'm gonna give a very uh, quick Hebrew lesson is that every single Hebrew word has what we call a shoresh. It has a source of the word. And usually those sources, it is a, uh, an early medieval debate 
as to whether or not these shorashim, whether or not, which comes from the word roots, whether these root words for Hebrew words, if they could be two letters or three letters, we'll put that on the side for a second, but most Hebrew words can be understood easily when you go ahead and you break it down into those component parts. So the, what is the shorash? What's the root of the word Hanukkah? The root of the word Hanukkah is inexorably chinuch. Chet nun chafsofit. There seems to be a deep affinity between this holiday of Hanukkah and the concept of education, and that's what I want to explore for the next couple of minutes with you guys. And the way that it works like, is like this. There are so many questions that are asked about this holiday, which boil down to the following thing. I'm gonna illustrate three of these questions. The first question is like this. You would have only needed, at the time of the Chashmonim, at the time of the Maccabees, when they were warring against the Seleucid Greeks, you would only have to go ahead and light that one candle in the beginning. You didn't need it to last for eight days because that very act of being able to light the menorah in the temple that signified the victory. That signified that we had conquered our oppressors. It was enough. What's this business with eight days? One question. Another question. As, as we teach our students, the miracle happened with what we call Shemen Zayitzach. It had to be the purest olive oil that they had for the temple precincts. Now remember, the temple was totally sacked by the by the Hellenist Jews and also by the Greeks themselves who were, who were, who were the occupiers at the time. And, and, and we know that they went, they were mehader, they went ahead and they struggled as much as possible to find this one cruise of oil that was sealed and they used that in order to go ahead and to light the menorah. And everybody points out that it, it didn't need to be. There was no real reason for them to have to expend all this effort to find that one cruise of oil. It was just unnecessary. They could have simply just lighted any oil and that would have lit any oil and that would have sufficed. And the third question is also that after they go ahead and they do that, what's, what, is the, what is this notion of, of, of instituting this for generations? And what I mean is that whenever people go ahead and light the menorah nowadays, they have to do so with the same kind of oil, shen and zayitzach, this pure olive oil, as was used in the original uh, miracle. That we have to go ahead and we have to do what, uh, what a great rabbi, uh, Rabbi Michael Rosenzweig of Yeshiva University says, a maximalization of mitzvot. Doing, doing commandments at the, at the best possible, at the, at the most elite level, at the best possible way. These are like three main questions that everybody asks about this holiday. It didn't need to be at such a high level, they could have simply gotten away with doing a bare minimum and it would have still been Hanukkah. It would have still been a great miracle. It would have still been a holiday that we're celebrating thousands of years later. So in order to answer these questions, I want to go back to what educators do when they're at their best. When educators are at their best and when, when a soul of a child, or honestly, when the soul of an adult that you're educating is at stake, in order to be able to have the proper effect, in order for that chinuch, in order for that education, to be able to do something, to change a person, and to not just be something that you went to class and you left, or you heard a talk and you left and you just went on, but that something transcended, that something real happened, that you decided to change something, you decided to go ahead and to use that information or to better your own life and to, and to be a happier person and to lead a more, a, a more profound and deeper life, is that every option needs to be gained out. Everything needs to be considered before you go ahead and do that act. Hanukkah, is a holiday of consideration of what's going to happen after the initial act. 
Everything at the time was, was, was assumed to have been lost. This was a last-ditch effort by a group of rebels that saw not only their own brethren being sucked into Hellenism, which was the dominant culture already. People don't even know this, but just a historical uh, parenthetical point is that at the time, there were already large Jewish communities around the Levant that had moved away from the land of Israel to establish Jewish life there, Alexandria. We know already in Egypt already had a Jewish population that rivaled every other Jewish city of the time except for Jerusalem. In fact, they tell us, just another parenthetical note, the, the synagogue in Alexandria was so large, the Talmud tells us, that when it came time to answer Amen in the show, they didn't have amplification, and the way that they would do is they would raise flags to let people in the back know that it came time to answer Amen so great and the entire community was a Hellenic Jewish community. We know of one of its most famous exponents was Philo of Alexandria, who wrote one of the first commentaries of the Torah in about AD, AD CE in the Common Era. And this was the milieu of the Jewish world at the time. The Chashmonaim, the Maccabees, decided that if we are going to be doing something, if we're going to make a last-ditch effort to renew Judaism, to go ahead and to take and to inspire people and to say, this is something we need to take back for ourselves, every possible outcome needed to be considered at the very beginning. That we have to go ahead and we have to use the best possible olive oil, even if it's going to be difficult to look for it. We have to go ahead and we have to make sure, and God helped us out with this, that it lasts for eight nights to signify that a great miracle has indeed occurred over here. And when the halacha, when the Jewish law for Hanukkah was established for generations, for thousands of years, the way that it was established was termed mehadrin min mahadrin. The, the best of the best, the most maximal performance of the mitzvah. Anything less would not suffice. And when educators are at our best, when a child comes to us with a problem, or when a teacher is thinking about a problem like my geschmack stickers, even the most trivial thing now takes on immense significance, immense importance, because so much is at stake. Because what you do in education is you don't just focus on this moment right now. But you're focusing on all the future outcomes of this moment. How is this child going to take this moment, hopefully a moment in which Torah and Judaism is being imparted, what it means to be a good person, what it means to conduct yourself with proper midot, character traits, what it means to go ahead and to live a good life. In order to be able to accomplish that, when you start out at that moment, at that outset moment, everything needs to be considered. Every possible outcome. If I don't use the right word, if I don't go ahead and write the test the right way, if I use the wrong stickers in my class that makes a single child in my class feel alienated, so then I will have failed at my job. I will have not been able to accomplish the chinuch or the Hanukkah that happens in my classroom. And I promise you that I am, I am nowhere near where so many of my colleagues are <coughs> in doing this. This is what education is all about. I have a list that I got from my mentor, Feggy uh, Safran, amazing lady. So a list that she gave me for every conversation that I could consult, and hopefully as I, as I learn more and more, I could become better and becomes far more accessible, of sentence stems. You guys know what I'm talking about? That every time somebody comes in, I'm, I, have people here read the book, uh, How to Speak to Children So Children Will Listen? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing book. It says, actually says for parents, you assume that it's easy to talk to children. And I mean, nobody, no parent really assumes that. <laughs> but, but you assume that it's, it's, that it's a regular conversation. Unfortunately, it's not. There's so much at stake, even telling a child how to clean up their room, right? Even something as trivial as that or how to eat their dinner, right? Things that 
I'm struggling with right now, right? <laughs> in order to be able to go and to do that, there's a way to listen. Or if a child comes to you with a problem, how to validate. And then I was reading this book for the second time and I was wondering, well, this isn't about kids, this is about everybody. This is about everything that we do. If only people considered the outcomes, if, and if, if only we, we saw every moment, every interaction, every face-to-face -face that we have with somebody, every time we do something for ourselves, if we considered that beginning moment, the outset, what we call the nikudata atchala, the, the beginning point of these things, if we considered it as deeply, so we would have far more successful results in the long term. It means thinking in the long run. And, and I would argue that that's exactly what Hanukkah is all about. I want to I I give a few examples from Jewish tradition that go ahead and further illustrate this point. And the Talmud tells us, I'm going to take off my fleece. The Talmud tells us, I also said if I felt that people's, uh, when Alana asked me to, if I wanted to sit, so, so I, I said if, if I find that attention is flagging, I'm liable to stand up and do the full rabbinic thing. So, so watch out. Um, one example is the following. The Talmud tells us about a beautiful thing that happened. The priests in the temple, so part of their service in the temples, they would bring animal sacrifice. Another part of the service in the temple is that they would bring something called minachot. Minachot are vegetable sacrifices. In fact, parenthetically, we're told also by various streams in Jewish thought that uh, if somebody is uncomfortable with the concept of animal sacrifice, it doesn't really seem so, uh, it doesn't seem so accessible an idea in 2019. I personally find it a little bit uncomfortable, but you know, let the Messiah come and let us figure it out then. But there is a stream of Jewish thought that all of the sacrifices in the future temple will only be vegetable sacrifices, will only be sacrifices. And they used to bring various mixtures. It's actually recited in, in the daily prayers. They would bring flowers and oils and different kinds of seeds and, and, and incense. All of these things fall under the category of what we call menachot. And the menachot were to be done by every priest when they came to the temple, except there was a special ceremony that the Talmud describes for us. It was called the minchat chinuch. The minchat chinuch was the educational offering that whenever a young Kohen was inaugurated, a young priest was inaugurated into the service in the temple, so what would happen would be that the elder Kohanim, the elder priest would bring them in for the first time that they would serve God in, in, the, in the temple, right? I mean, it's a big deal. The first time that they would do it would be a celebratory moment. And, he, and, and the child would be taught by the older priests how to go ahead and do it. There was such a consideration for the Nikudat HaTchala, there was such a consideration of Chinuch, that it was called the Minchat Chinuch. It's a sui generis kind of offering that happened in the temple. The Minchat Chinuch was something that, that, we, that we know was, was, was as important a moment in a young priest's life as it was, as we would, as we would think of a bar and bat mitzvah. <laughs> or even a, a, a wedding, that was a, it was a seminal, important moment that would, that would shape the way in which they would serve God for the rest of their time in the temple. Another example that I wanted to mention uh, is, is this stunning idea. I, I read it, and I, I mean, it comes from, from this book. Uh, this, I feel like, um, what's the name of that show? Reading Rainbow. Uh, <laughs> so take a look. It's in this book. So, um, so this is the Pachad Yitzchak. And the Pachad Yitzchak illustrates this idea in such a beautiful way. I think it's always important to know who we're talking about when we talk about these books. They're not just books on the shelf. Um, even though my wife tells me I have far too many on the shelves mm. and we're running out of space in our apartment, Pachad Yitzchak was written by Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner. Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner was the Rosh Yeshiva, he was the dean of, uh, of Yeshiva in Brooklyn that's still extant nowadays, uh, called Yeshiva Chaim Berlin. Uh, incidentally, Rav Hutner's daughter, 
Bruria Hutner David, Dr. Bruria Hutner David, is the founder and dean of uh, what's considered one of the most prominent women's institutions of Torah learning in the world, which is called Beit Yaakov of Yerushalayim. Uh, and she's still alive nowadays. Ruf Hutner passed away in 1980. He was a European uh, Torah student. He traveled to the land of Israel uh, in a breakaway of the famous Slabodka Yeshiva, which is also still exists in various different forms nowadays. Ruf Hutner narrowly, narrowly missed uh, the 1929 massacre in which pretty much every last student in the Yeshiva was wiped away. Um, and Ruf Hutner was away at the time. And uh, he made his way to America. Ruf Hutner famously was on a uh, hijacked TWA airplane in 1974. There's reports of the way that he conducted himself in the face of his hijackers who recognized uh, even doing an evil act, what, the measure of the man that was in front of them. And this was Ruf Hutner. Ruf Hutner uh, saw as part of his life's mission of teaching Torah is that is what we're talking about today, is that whenever there are Jewish actions, we have chavot, we have obligations as Jews, and, and that people understand that as, as the mitzvot, as the commandments to fulfill, but on a deeper level, there's what we call chavot halavavot, that there's obligations of the heart, duties of the heart, that every time you perform a mitzvah, it's lacking with the heart aspect, the lacking of the understanding, then the mitzvah, the commandments performance is incomplete. It hasn't accomplished what it's supposed to do. So he dedicated a series of talks. They used to be called Ma'amarim. Hundreds of people would come and these wide-ranging discussions would last several hours. And in it, Rav, Rav Hutner would build palaces of Jewish thought in order to illustrate the Chavot HaLevavot. So Rav Hutner, I would, I would argue that the most profound of these works that are written on all of the Jewish holidays, the most profound of them is his work on Hanukkah. I'm, I'm blown away by what I read there. Rav Hutner writes the following thing. He says that there is a verse in uh, Tehillim, in Psalms. The verse says in Hebrew, and then I'll translate it, says, that, and this is ostensibly speaking to Jewish parents, and to educators, and to really anybody that comes in contact uh, with a young soul, with, with a person, or anybody at the beginning of something. Chanoch lenar al pidarko. Teach the child according to their way. Gam ki And even when they get old, lo ya'azveka. They will not leave it. And Rufutner says that this verse can be rendered homiletically in a little bit of a different way. Everybody reads this verse as almost to say, yeah, whatever the kid wants, teach them, and, uh, and, and that's all pidarka. That's according to their path. That's, what they, that's how they learn. Find something that speaks to them. So going back to Rabbi Kramer, he understood this verse ostensibly as saying, young boys in eighth grade, right? There's nothing more amazing, especially, I have to say, I could speak only from a Jewish boy's perspective, but there's nothing more amazing than football because it's just not accessible to us, right? There's no way that I'm ever going to play football at any sort of competitive level. I even tried to play flag football, and the first week that I tried to do it, I used to truck out to Teaneck. I texted, my wife was an ER nurse at the time. I texted her uh, with a picture of my face, and I had gotten popped in the eye, and I had a big gash on my face, and uh, Hani responded to me. She's like, what do you want from me? Go to urgent care. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, I she was like, I, you're going to be okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Football was the coolest thing. Rabbi Kramer understood that how do I go ahead and bring these Jewish boys, these five towns boys, how do I bring them into Gemara, into a love of Gemara? I'm going to use a football metaphor. I'm going to put it into action with the stickers. It must have been what was in his mind. There's, there's no way that that wasn't what he was thinking in doing so. He was using our own interests in order to go ahead and to show us what our interests should be at the very best, which is Jewish learning. 
and, 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 and every decision needs to be alpidarko. You have to understand the child. All of cutting-edge educational research talks about this nowadays. People have wisened up to the fact that, that, believe it or not, children are people too, and that they have whole internal lives, and you have to think about everything, and their emotions are real and shouldn't be dismissed, and that we should consider everything because we're looking not just as adults in potentia, but that we're looking, we're looking at, 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 at full-blown human beings right now. For too long, education was just looking at them in the here and now and saying, maybe if we do this thing, then they'll turn out to be a successful adult. No, we're interested in a successful child, a successful learner right now. Chinuch means to consider that. Rav Hutner says, Teach the child according to their ways. He says, that's a dangling participle. What does that mean? What, they won't leave what? What won't they leave behind when they get older? He says something unbelievable. And this is like, uh, if I said one idea tonight, this is the main idea. Rufutner says, if you initiate, if you start a child's education in a way that speaks to them, if you start an adult's education, anybody that's looking to go ahead and to begin a new chapter, anybody that's looking to go ahead and to explore something new, that's not exactly what they've been doing. The way that you do it in the beginning is how it's going to set the tone for the rest of it. No pressure, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to set the tone for the rest of it. Gam kiyazkin lo yazveka means that they will not Leave being a learner. Rav Hutner writes in his beautiful Hebrew, he says, The greatest goal of education is to create lifelong learners. The greatest goal of Chinuch is to create that moment where you could always refer back to it and you could say, I want to continue to be a learner. I want to continue to be open to new experiences. And by the way, that's the dual meaning of the word Chanukah, is that it doesn't just come from this language of, of initiation of beginnings, but it also means renewal. It also means that what I think is a really important part of what I try and teach to when I speak to adults, I'm going to give another share after this, but when I speak to adults, one of the things that I always use is that there is really no such thing as being old. There's no such thing, I, I feel like it now, but, but there's no such thing. The, one of the greatest goals in life is to remain a child for as long as we can, to retain a curiosity about the world, to retain an interest and an openness to new things, to retain a wonder, a sense of radical amazement at all the things around us. It's hard as adults because we have to deal, I have to do math homework with my second grader. I mean, that's like, how could I think about radical amazement with, uh, with, with that in play when I'm trying to do multiplication? But, but, but the idea is, is that this is accessible not just to children and not just from me and my role as, a, as an educator of eighth graders and fifth graders and younger than that. But, it's, but it should be a part and parcel of everything that we say to ourselves and everything that we say to others. Gam kiaskin, if we start off in the right way, if our chinuch, if the initiation is done in the right way, so then we're going to go ahead and accomplish the greatest act of education, which is to create lifelong learners. It's to create people that go ahead and say that initial moment is something I want to regain. When we light the Hanukkah candles in this maximal way, and we do it in this best possible way as it was started by the Maccabees, started by the Maccabees, what we're actually doing is we're showing that we're continuing that inaugural moment thousands of years later. It seems like the Maccabees did their job. It seems like they accomplished that. Because every time that we go to light Hanukkah candles, we don't just suffice with the bare minimum of the commandment. I, I, I mean, the halacha would be, the Jewish law would be, that if you just lit one candle, that would suffice. But that we do it in this maximum way because every single time we do it, it's like the great beginning. And this happens so many times in our Jewish lives. Right? It's, uh, it's, uh, we're invited to an upsharon. An upsharon is, uh, is a, a special haircutting ceremony for a three-year-old. 
don't know if anybody's been to an upsharon, but but everything that happens in an upsharon is is tailor made for this specific purpose. And all these things that seem rather inconsequential. So the alphabet, right? The Hebrew alphabet is given pieces of honey on it. What a beautiful moment that a child's first first encounter with the Hebrew alphabet is one that is sweet and beautiful. And then we go ahead and we have, uh, the, the, the custom is to go ahead and to bring the child to get a little sniff from hair from great people. What an amazing thing that at the very beginning of their initiation into Torah commandments for a little Jewish boy, that the way that you go ahead and you do this, you say, here, meet great people. Come in contact with greatness, people that have made their lives about this. Or Simchapat. We made a Simchapat for my daughter, which is a, a, a special, uh, actually has its roots in Sephardic custom, special celebration of the birth of a daughter. So when we did it for my daughter, Noah, so when we went ahead and we did that, so even though she wasn't old enough to understand, the other children who we were thinking about there were, that we made sure that the verses that we read, that everybody understood that this is all about beginnings, that the beginning should be something that's sweet and beautiful, especially when it comes to our tradition, especially when it comes to Judaism, especially when it comes to keeping commandments and doing it with the heart in place, with chavot halavavot, with the obligations of the heart in place. Considering every possible outcome and thinking as much as we can about how that's going to reverberate and resonate for many, many years hence. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that every single Jewish boy and girl, I, I'm not responsible for, the, I am responsible, but unfortunately I'm not as involved with the younger division, with the younger grades in our school, but, but, but there's this beautiful thing. It's like a modern American thing, the sitter play. Right? The, they have a special production that first graders do when they receive their very first prayer book. And, and, they, and they wear hats, and it's, and it's a whole affair. And then they receive their, their chumashim, their Bibles, in second grade, and it's an even bigger affair. And all of this is meant to go ahead and that they can look back at that picture and they can say, I was somebody that received my first, my first prayer book, and it was a sweet and beautiful thing. And then I received my first Bible, and it was a sweet and beautiful thing. And that's sweetness. And that excitement is something that hopefully could be accessible for the rest of their lives. That every possible decision is gained out. That it's thought about. This is chinuch. This is, this is true in Jewish education. This is true in actually any education when it's done well. And this is true for the Maccabim, for the Maccabees in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple when they started this holiday. And that's why Rav Hutner says another profound thing, and I'll really I'll wrap up with this. This is why he says that every holiday, we call the Hebrew language Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. There's a big debate. This, maybe we'll talk about it at a different juncture as what exactly makes a language holy. Right? There's a whole discussion. Maimonides, Nachmanides, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Huda Levi, everybody has different opinions about this. But one thing that they all agree on is that, it's, it, that it, it has the ability to, to, to show us that not just the words are significant, but the meaning behind them. That, there's, that you could plumb the depths of the words themselves. He says, when you look at the way that our rabbis, thousands of years ago, chose to call things, so that's significant. Hanukkah, the word that they call the holiday, is not just a term that they tossed out on the holiday, but it expresses the essence of the holiday. It expresses what we might term the mystery of the holiday. Rufutner said there are many other times throughout Jewish history where we've been oppressed. I mean, that's basically our story, right? We've been oppressed, we eat, everybody knows that, right? There are many. So why, why this particular holiday? Why this particular time do we choose to give it this unique name of Hanukkah? Why, why is that? What does that teach us about the essence of the holiday? Rufutner writes in the very same Ma'amar, in the very same uh, essay, he says, because Hanukkah teaches us about beginnings, it teaches us about chinuch, it shares the same shorish, the same root 
as education. And that educational message is for all of us, whether you're a child just starting out or whether you're an adult that's also just starting out and whether you're a person that's at the twilight of life who's also just starting out, that when you do things for the beginning, that you consider how that looks like in the future, you consider every possible ramification of your action and you ensure that that beginning moment is one that is pure, is one that is sweet, is one that is done to the maximal possible effect And when you consider all these alternatives, all you could do is just point to God and say, I've done my part, now it's time for you to do yours, God. I want to caution and say that, I don't mean to put a damper on this, but it doesn't always work out. It doesn't always mean that because I could say that I crossed my T's and I dotted my I's and I really cared about it and I stopped and I thought about it and I considered the ramification, it doesn't always mean that it works out. As we see often, unfortunately, many times, best laid plans remain just that. That's where the godly aspect comes in. It's the final thing I say is that the Chashmonaim did everything, the Maccabees did everything that they could to ensure that this moment of Hanukkah, when they entered into that temple, when they had finished their guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid Greek occupiers, they did everything to ensure that that moment was special and important and signified a renewal. But it took... And Hanukkah also teaches us that it takes also a slightly different element, a slightly different ingredient to ensure that success and that's dependent upon God. To go ahead, there's a certain arrogance that I would say I'm susceptible to, to think, well, I've done everything the right way. I've been really considerate in my decision. I've really, th- I, I took a second to think before this conversation, right? I, I, I thought about my stickers before I, I deployed it in my classroom, but it doesn't always mean that it works out. The, the oil, they had no idea that it was going to last for eight days. There is always going to be an element, this is part of the mystery, of the miraculous. There's always going to be an element of the godly, of something transcendent that takes our efforts, our chinuch, our education, and elevates it to something far greater that turns it into a miracle. My blessing to all of us mm. is that when we begin, when we start things, and we could begin Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who I'm about to go teach about downtown, Rabbi mm. Nachman of Breslov tells us you could begin again a thousand times mm. in a single day. He does it. His students tell us this. He's a great, great Hasidic rabbi. He, they write, Rabbeinu hayamatchil elef pamim b'chol yom. He would fall. He would say, I'm getting back up again. He would mm. fall. I'm getting back up again. To constantly say, I have a new opportunity. Beginnings is not some, 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 some moment on the calendar. It's not some special time that's an appointed moed. It's not something that's a, a big meeting time that we have to prepare for. Beginning could be at this moment right now. I could begin. I feel like I'm speaking badly now. I could stop it. I could say, okay, you got this. Try and say something that's going to enter into people's hearts. That kind of beginning is accessible and available to everybody at every single point. It only takes a moment of consciousness. It only takes a meditative moment to say this is accessible to me. And if we look at those Hanukkah candles and we think about that, hopefully God, my blessing to all of us, is that when we, we do our efforts, that God shows us our miracles. And whatever miracle we're looking for, whatever thing that's missing, whatever thing that we feel has become ossified, calcified, old, or, 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 or hackneyed, or overdone in our lives, that it finds new vigor, that it finds new, uh, new light. And that we're able to look at those candles. They say the great Hasidic rabbis would sit by the Hanukkah candles for hours, for hours, just meditating, just sitting with the candles in order to try and gain some wisdom, some understanding, to allow the heart to connect to the head and to understand what the holiday is all about. I would submit that that's a pretty deep mystery. I would, I would hope that, 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 that all of us together 
with this Hanukkah and all other Hanukkahs, that we see it as a moment of new beginnings, a moment of renewal, that we bring light into our lives, and, and hopefully, 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 not just for us, but for the entire world, for the entire world, really everybody, mm-hmm. that a world that's hurting, that we see miracles. And, uh, and may this be a time of miracles. Amen. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.